Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, July 11th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Turkey backs Sweden joining NATO. Six are killed in a kindergarten stabbing in China. The U.S. destroys the last of its chemical weapons stockpile. The BBC meets with police over an alleged sexual abuse scandal. Yellen ends her trip to China with productive talks. The U.S. kills an IS leader in Syria. Three migrant boats go missing near the Canary Islands. Silicon Valley Bank's former owner sues a U.S. banking regulator. A former reporter sues CNN. And a Belarusian tennis player is booed after losing Wimbledon to a Ukrainian. In our top story, the NATO chief says Turkey will back Sweden's membership. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Forbes, NBC, and Al Jazeera. According to NATO chief Jen Stoltenberg, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has agreed to support Sweden's bid to join the Atlantic Alliance. This comes after Erdogan previously accused Sweden of hosting Kurdish militants and saying Turkey would only back Sweden if the EU reopened membership talks with Ankara. Following talks Monday with Lithuania and Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson, Erdogan said his country will vote to make Sweden the bloc's 32nd member. In his announcement, coming before the NATO summit was to begin in Vilnius, Lithuania Tuesday, Stoltenberg said that as part of the agreement, NATO will also increase its efforts in counterterrorism and trade with Turkey, adding that Sweden agreed to establish a new bilateral security accord. Regarding EU membership, Erdogan said, quote, Turkey has been waiting at the door of the European Union for over 50 years now and almost all of the NATO member countries are now members of the European Union. Hungary also held out of voting to approve Sweden, but Stoltenberg said that Budapest, quote, has made it clear they will not be the last to ratify, and that that problem will be solved. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts. Let's start our first spin with the pro-establishment narrative from Vox. Sweden has endured a lot of bullying from Turkey to get to this moment, but thankfully, Erdogan finally made the right decision. Sweden, as well as Finland, has a strong track record of not only upholding democratic institutions, but cooperating with NATO despite not receiving membership. This is a great day for the West as Russia continues its aggressive tactics against Ukraine and threatens its EU neighbors. The establishment critical narrative is coming from nationalinterest.org. Common sense would tell you that expanding a nuclear-capable military alliance on Russia's doorstep is a bad idea on its own. But history also shows us why this will only aggravate Moscow further and put these newest members at risk. Finland and Sweden did just fine as neutral parties for decades, with strong militaries and developed uncorrupt political systems. Turkey's sudden about-face in sync with a discussion about its own EU membership is suspect as well. So, Eric, what do you think's smarter to do? Avoiding poking literally the bear, Russia, by bringing these countries in or shoring up your military alliance by bringing these countries in? I think we should all go on vacation. Hey, you know, I bet you I bet you uh, Sweden's nice this time of year. <laughs> I bet it is. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Horrifically tragic news coming from China as six are killed in a kindergarten stabbing. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, BBC News, The New York Post, NBC News, The Global Times, and Al Jazeera. Six people were killed and one injured during a stabbing at a kindergarten on Monday in the city of Liangjiang in the southern Chinese province of Guangdong. Local police arrested a 25-year-old man surnamed Wu 20 minutes later. This attack, which reportedly claimed the lives of one teacher, two parents, and three children, allegedly stems from a vehicular incident as an anonymous source stated that one of the adult victims had hit the suspect's child with a car before, never providing him with any compensation. Although the Municipal Education Bureau stated that the investigation remains underway, local police refused to comment or provide further details about the assault that has become the top-trending discussion in Weibo. The latest news prompted emotive debate on the social media platform, with some users questioning security at schools following a spate of similar attacks at preschools over the past years, despite China's low violent crime rate. Last August, three people were killed and others wounded in a preschool stabbing in Jiangxi province. A year earlier, a man killed two children and wounded 16 at a kindergarten in Guangxi. While some people point to China's tough lockdowns as a possible additional reason for this increase in violence, others point to patterns of males who are outcasts from society. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. The first spin is Narrative A coming from Smithsonian Magazine. Gun-free China, as has been the case in European countries, has seen a spike in mass killings with non-firearm weapons for decades now. While guns are certainly capable of more destruction, knives, swords, and meat cleaver attacks have resulted in several deadly killings of adults and children alike. Though their violent crime rates are lower than the U.S., these countries must work to stem this novel jump in random violence. And Reuters brings us Narrative B. As violent crime was historically non-existent in the PRC, the only societal change in recent decades has been the increase in social collapse and mental health deterioration. This has hit the mainland and territory such as Hong Kong showing the spread of cultural decay and violence is connected to a social contagion and lack of mental health treatment rather than just access to weapons. The U.S. destroys the last of its chemical weapons stockpile. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, Reuters, Al Jazeera, Guardian, and Business Insider. On Friday, U.S. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, announced that the U.S. had eradicated the last of its chemical weapons stockpile when it destroyed the last sarin nerve agent-filled M55 rocket at the Bluegrass Army Depot in McConnell's home state of Kentucky. This completes a process of destruction that the U.S. had been conducting at the U.S. Army Pueblo Chemical Depot in Colorado and at Bluegrass ahead of a September 30, 2023 deadline set by the Chemical Weapons Convention for all signatories to destroy their chemical weapons. Chemical weapons were first used when they killed at least 100,000 people during World War I, and countries continued to stockpile them despite a ban by the Geneva Convention. The Chemical Weapons Convention took effect in 1997, with 193 countries signing on. Egypt, North Korea, and South Sudan did not sign the treaty. U.S. President Biden, meanwhile, claimed that Syria and Russia are suspected of maintaining undeclared weapons programs. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Forbes. It took decades longer than expected, but the U.S. destruction of its chemical weapons stockpile was a massive undertaking that required great caution with extremely dangerous materials. What matters is that the U.S. came in ahead of the deadline, and now for the first time, an international body can claim the eradication 
of a full category of mass destruction weapons. The establishment critical narrative comes from the independent. At the same time the U.S. destroyed the last of its chemical weapons, it agreed to share some of its most controversial and dangerous weapons with Ukraine for its war with Russia, such as cluster munitions that are banned by more than 120 countries. The U.S. shouldn't be bragging. It should be embarrassed over its hypocrisy and warmongering. Police meet with the BBC after a presenter is suspended. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Mirror, Sky News, Independent, The Guardian, and The Evening Standard. Following public claims on Friday alleging that a BBC TV presenter paid a teenager £35,000, or 45000 American dollars, for sexually explicit photos, the corporation met with police on Monday to discuss the matter further. An investigation is yet to be opened, however, with the police still trying to ascertain whether a criminal offense was committed. Last week, newspaper outlet The Sun reported that a familiar name from the BBC had paid the then-teenager the sum over three years, beginning when they were reportedly only 17. UK law prohibits the ability to legally consent to sending explicit photos until the age of 18. On Sunday, the BBC stated that it takes any allegation seriously with the company working as quickly as possible to establish the facts of a complex and fast-moving set of circumstances. The BBC revealed that it has been investigating a complaint since May with allegations of a different nature brought to them last Thursday. The unnamed TV presenter has since been suspended. Over the weekend, The Sun further revealed that the child's family had made the complaint to the BBC on May 19th, with the mother of the youth telling the newspaper that the household name presenter had requested performances from her child. London's Metropolitan Police confirmed within a statement that they had received initial contact from the BBC, although no formal referral or allegation had been made. They added that further information was required before determining what further action should follow. Thank you, Scott. Our first spin is Narrative A. It's coming from Oxford Mail. Despite the seriousness of the allegations, It has taken nearly 50 days and the pressure of public outcry for the BBC to take any action against the unnamed presenter through this suspension. The BBC has once again pressed its own self-destruct button and shown how not to deal with a crisis. And narrative B comes from The Telegraph. The claims made most recently are far more serious than those initially made in May, and the BBC has acted swiftly to suspend the presenter in question. However, at this stage, the facts are still being determined, and the staff member has the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. Are you going to throw your hat in the ring, Scott? Yes, I am currently getting my resume together. You better start working on that British accent. No, no, I have an exotic American accent. Oh, (laughs) If they can send their biggest jerk, Piers Morgan, here... (laughs) Me, our biggest jerk, can go over there. It's only fair. Yellen ends a China trip after productive talks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Al Jazeera, Business Insider, NPR Online News, DW, and Reuters. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on Sunday concluded a four-day trip to China to help mend strained U.S.-China ties saying she held direct, substantive, and productive talks with the PRC's new economic leadership, including Premier Li Keng and Central Bank Chief Pan Gongsheng. Noting significant disagreements over what she described as Beijing's unfair economic practices, Yellen said the Biden administration does not view China-U.S. relations through the lens of a great power conflict, insisting that the world is big enough for both countries to flourish. Days before Yellen's China visit, 
Beijing restricted exports of two key rare metals used in chipmaking, further intensifying the trade standoff between the two countries after Washington imposed new export curbs on advanced computer chips to China last October. Defending targeted U.S. trade measures that Chinese leaders claim are aimed at damaging China's emerging tech industry, Yellen said Washington will listen to Chinese complaints about U.S. curbs on technology exports and may respond to unintended consequences. Following the talks, bilateral ties are now on sure footing, Yellen said, also referring to Chinese concerns about an expected executive order restricting U.S. foreign investment, adding that such an order would be limited in scope and implemented in a transparent manner. While Beijing and Washington agreed to keep communication channels open for economic talks at all levels, the PRC Finance Ministry on Monday urged the Biden administration to take practical measures concerning U.S. sanctions against Chinese companies. The pro-China narrative on this story comes from the Global Times. Yellen's visit once again reveals the paradoxical character of U.S. policy toward China. While Yellen underscored Washington's desire to improve relations, this will do little to change Washington's overall decoupling strategy. Bilateral relations are primarily based on deeds rather than words, and by seeing the PRC primarily as a strategic rival, the U.S. will continue to block China's economic and technological rise for the sake of national security. Unless Washington reconsiders its zero-sum approach, there is no escaping this dead end. The anti-China narrative comes from Financial Times. While Yellen's trip did not yield any concrete breakthroughs, the fact that she is the first U.S. Treasury Secretary to visit China in four years is an important step forward. During her difficult mission, Yellen signaled that there is no contradiction in seeking to improve political and economic relations, on the one hand, and defending Washington's national security interests through targeted safeguards on the other. Beijing's recent punitive economic measures are unlikely to improve ties, but Washington welcomes China's efforts to discuss ways to de-escalate. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 15% chance that the U.S. and China will be at war before the year 2035. U.S. Central Command announced on Sunday that Islamic State leader Usama al-Muhajir was killed on Friday in a drone strike carried out by the American military, adding that there is no indication any civilians were killed. He was hit while reportedly riding a motorcycle near Aleppo in northwestern Syria, an area where the U.S. has conducted other strikes against alleged terrorist leaders. It was not immediately clear how the U.S. identified the casualty as al-Mujahir, who usually operated in eastern Syria, with no further details of the military operation being provided. This comes as the U.S. has escalated strikes against IS leaders and operatives, killing and arresting officials who spread across the Middle East when the group was territorially defeated in 2019. The American MQ-9 drones engaged in this mission are allegedly the same that were reportedly harassed three times last week by Russian aircraft operating in Syria in support of President Bashar al-Assad. U.S. officials expressed concern for three consecutive days starting on Wednesday over Russian fighter jets conducting unsafe and unprofessional behavior, while the MQ-9 drones were on a mission against IS over Syria. Thank you, Scott. The pro-establishment narrative is coming from airandspaceforces.com. Though Moscow professedly supports U.S. operations against IS, which is still a major threat to regional security, its actions indicate the contrary as Russian warplanes almost disrupted the mission that neutralized al-Muhajir. By overflying U.S. positions in Syria in violation of mutually agreed-upon de-confliction protocols, Russia is risking inhibiting further operations to ensure the lasting defeat of IS. 
and TASS brings us the establishment critical narrative. While this military operation may have been successful in neutralizing an IS leader, it does not justify repeated violations of flight safety rules committed by U.S.-led international coalition drones. Russian aircraft have been deployed strictly to ensure the integrity of Syria's airspace, which has been breached more than a thousand times in the first six months of 2023. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 4% chance that there will be a deadly clash between the U.S. and Russian armed forces before 2024. Three migrant boats are missing near the Canary Islands. And here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, Reuters, BBC News, ABC News, and France 24. On Sunday, migrant aid group Walking Borders said three boats carrying at least 300 people went missing near the Spanish Canary Islands. The three migrant vessels were traveling roughly 1,000 miles, or 1,600 kilometers from Cafountine in South Senegal to the Canary Islands. Two of the boats, carrying roughly 50 to 65 people each, have been missing for 15 days, while a third boat carrying about 200 people departed Senegal on June 27th. Family members of the passengers have not heard from their loved ones since they left. The Spanish Coast Guard said Monday that it found the boat carrying 200 migrants 70 nautical miles or 130 kilometers south of Gran Canaria and is sending a rescue vessel to assist the boat. However, the two smaller boats have still not been found. The Canary Islands have been a major destination for migrants coming to Spain, with 23,000 coming in 2020 and 7,000 in just the first six months of 2023 alone. The missing Singhalese boats come amid a rise in dangerous migrant journeys from Africa and the Middle East to Europe. A few weeks earlier, an overcrowded migrant vessel sank near Greece as 78 people drowned and another 500 went missing in one of the Mediterranean's deadliest shipwrecks. In the wake of rapidly rising migration from developing countries, European countries have bolstered patrols along the Mediterranean to reduce the influx of migrants. Despite the high number, migration to the Canary Islands is down compared to 2022. All right, thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a left narrative spin from Human Rights Watch. Spain has not done enough to protect migrants making dangerous trips to the country in search of a better life. Many people fleeing countries in conflict die during their journey to Europe, while Madrid does little to ensure safety during their trip. In fact, Spain has also implemented policies that will turn away asylum seekers and migrants, causing the most vulnerable to take even more perilous routes. EuropeanConservative.com brings us the right narrative. Spain has already taken far too many migrants and it should not take any more. The European nation is being inundated with illegal immigrants who are being illegally trafficked and exploited. There is nothing humane about an unrestricted migration system that enriches human traffickers, puts migrants in danger, and degrades the overall quality of life in Spain and other European nations. The ex-owner of Silicon Valley Bank sues a U.S. banking regulator over deposit seizures. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Financial Times. Reuters, Wall Street Journal, and Al Jazeera. The former parent company of Silicon Valley Bank, SVB Financial Group, has sued the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, to recover $1.9 billion in cash deposits the FDIC seized after taking control of the failed bank. SVB Financial Group has said that the seized funds are impeding the group's reorganization, which could force the country into costly debtor-in-possession financing. SVB Financial says the seized money should be generating $100 million in annual interest for the group, 
The FDIC estimates that the collapse of SVB was responsible for a $16 billion hit to its insurance fund, and it is legally allowed to retain the funds until it determines SVB financial's share of the rescue costs. In May, a bankruptcy judge ordered the FDIC to return $10 million in seized tax refund checks to SVB Financial. The suit alleges that the $1.9 billion in account funds is SVB Financial's core estate asset in their request for at least partial access to the funds, with the bank also requesting an explanation within two weeks to the extent of the burden SVB Financial will shoulder for the bank's failure. In court testimony, the FDIC claimed to observe an absence of corporate formalities between SVB Financial Group and Silicon Valley Bank, noting that the group relied on Silicon Valley Bank for its day-to-day operations. If any of the $1.9 billion is found to be the property of the bank, the FDIC could use it to offset the costs of the bank rescue. At the time of its collapse last March, Silicon Valley Bank was the 16th largest U.S. bank and was the largest collapse since the 2008 crash. The FDIC recorded the bank as having assets worth $209 billion and deposits worth $175.4 billion. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. Narrative A is our first spin. It's coming from Mercury News. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank was due to greed, plain and simple. Indeed, its CEO lobbied extensively for banking regulations to be loosened, only to need the FDIC to swoop in and save the company. The unusually cozy relationship between the bank and its parent company speaks to deep mismanagement, and the SVB Financial Group is trying to obstruct the FDIC from recovering what it is owed for the bank rescue. And the Wall Street Journal brings us Narrative B. Throughout the Silicon Valley Bank ordeal, the FDIC has shown itself to be less than an impartial and sober-minded regulator. Instead of focusing on the meager funds at stake here, we should examine the sweetheart deal with First Citizens Bank, which the FDIC made in order to exclude politically unpopular hedge funds from consideration, and will result in a huge loss for the regulator. This fight would be irrelevant if the FDIC pursued a better deal for the bank. If I said to you, uh, Eric, I'd like to borrow $100, and you said, okay, sure, Scott, and I said, ooh, I really do prefer a 50, four fives, a 10, and, uh, and, and 21s, that's what I'm going to need from you. Let me tell you something. I'll give you rolled pennies, and that's what you're getting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a former reporter is suing CNN over discrimination allegations. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Fox News. Mint, and New York Post. Saima Mohsen, a British-Pakistani former CNN reporter, revealed Monday via Twitter that she is suing the network over discrimination, she says, led to her firing after she was injured while on assignment in the Middle East. In 2014, Mohsen was injured when a cameraman ran over her foot with a car. She claims her requests for alternative duties and rehabilitation support from CNN while she was recovering were rejected. She also posted about her injury on her LinkedIn page, writing, quote, I live with pain all down my left side and am constantly exhausted, which is an extreme opposite of what you see on screen. She also claims she requested to become a presenter so she could travel less, but she was allegedly told she didn't have the company's desired appearance. She was fired three years later. While claiming CNN subjected her to racial and disability discrimination, Mosin also alleges her managers gave preferential treatment to white American correspondents, even when she was in the field. CNN claims Mosin can't sue the company in London based on the terms of her contract. All right, thanks for those facts, Eric. The Guardian brings us Narrative A. 
CNN knows it has done something unsavory as evidenced by its attempt to get this case thrown out based on territorial grounds, but it probably won't be able to avoid Mosin's suit any more than it can shake the effects of other recent scandals, including those involving its past two bosses and declining ratings. CNN is in trouble. Narrative B is coming from New York Times. CNN has certainly faced some challenges in recent months, but it's getting its act together by picking the right people to manage the network and finding the right talent to fill its most important time slots. CNN also has a plan to generate revenue that will keep it thriving for the foreseeable future. This media juggernaut will be able to weather the storm, especially since uh, Scott Wallace is doing the late show, oh, yeah. the 9 p.m. time slot. That network is going to soar. Yeah, that, that's, mean, that's dollars. Yeah, that, that is that's dollars just, right there. Yeah, that's right. Just start counting it up. Our final story, a Belarusian is booed after a Wimbledon loss to a Ukrainian. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Independent, The Globe and Mail, CNN, and The Evening Standard. On Sunday, Belarusian player Victoria Azarenka was loudly booed off the court after her three-set fourth-round loss to Ukrainian player Elena Svitolina at Wimbledon. After winning the match, Svitolina declined to shake hands with Azarenka due to the ongoing war in Ukraine, a move that aligns with a decision made by players in the Ukrainian Tennis Federation to not shake hands with Russian or Belarusian players as long as the war continues. After the final point, Azarenko went to the net and showed Svitolina her appreciation with a hand gesture instead of a handshake. As she left the court, Azarenka shook her head and made a gesture with her hands above her head in response to the boos. Svitolina, who last month was booed by the French Open crowd for not shaking hands with Belarusian Arinya Sabalenka following a quarterfinal defeat, has called for tennis organizations to inform spectators about the Ukrainian player's decision to not shake hands with Russian and Belarusian players. This is the first year Russian and Belarusian players have been allowed to play Wimbledon after the tournament banned them last season. They are competing as neutral athletes this year. The Washington Post brings us the first spin. It is Narrative A. It says, while there's no telling how Russian and Belarusian players feel about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the players who are competing have done nothing wrong and don't deserve to be booed over the decision of Ukrainians to take a political stand. Something must be done beforehand to let the crowd know there won't be a handshake because of the politics involved, so players will be treated with respect. Narrative B comes from the Daily Mail. Players and fans alike make their own decision on how to react to the conclusion of a match, and anything that takes place after it. Most fans are respectful of the players, and it's not up to Wimbledon to attempt to regulate the organic reaction of the crowd or the players. Our final nerd narrative of today's podcast is coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. It says there's a 10% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, July 11th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric. Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Mm-hmm.